You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. Um, wait, let me get up a minute. One second. Yeah, like, uh, I listen to Nicole Sandler. There's a time for the Nicole Sandler show, and... Oh, I forgot to turn the computer on. Let me just walk over here, and I'll boot up my computer, because... I don't want... Oh, crap. I just... Never mind. It's okay. I got another one. I'll leave it there. The cat will get it. Got a little tune here. A little song to sing for you. Matt Nicole. She does something. She's really there. And does things. Nicole Tamler show, whatever it is. It's Friday the 13th, and it's October, so Halloween is right around the corner. And, well, hi, I'm Nicole Sandler, coming to you from my new home in Chandler. As you can hear, my studio is still really echoey. I did get a rug, but I need some sound-deadening stuff on the walls because um, it's echo, echo, echo. Although it sounds kind of cool, right? All right, well... That's on the list. Anyway, today, hopefully, is the last day that I'll have to pre-record a show. Our stuff is supposed to arrive tomorrow. And Sunday, I will spend building my studio with the goal of going live everywhere on Monday. Now, that's all predicated upon me being able to get the studio all set up and running flawlessly on Sunday. So, fingers crossed. And uh, we'll get there. So a few weeks back, there was a story in the news about Billy Bragg, the singer-songwriter from the UK. He released a song in response to that rich man north of Norfolk or whatever it was called. He called it Rich Man North of a Million. And we played it. And then I told you about the interview that I did with Billy Bragg back in 2009 on Air America when he had recorded a new version, new lyrics to Beethoven's Ninth, to the Ode to Joy. And I never got to it during the moving shows, so I thought we'd do it today. Because the lyrics truly fit the situation now going on in our world, and war and peace and hate and love. And so I thought we would wrap up today's show 
with that interview with Billy Bragg. So stand by for that. For the first half of the show, I'm going to re-air my interview with Heather Cox Richardson. It was recorded at the beginning of September, and I aired it as the very first show of the best of moving shows. Heather Cox Richardson has been visible almost everywhere since her book came out. We got one of the first interviews with her. Um, So just know we're not addressing the current situation with the insanity in the Republican House or the war in the Middle East, but things as they were at the beginning of September. Regardless, you should be subscribing to uh, Letters from an American that is Heather Cox Richardson's uh, Substack newsletter. There's a free version, which is what I get. And um, read the book. You'll hear all about it in just a moment. In fact, let's start right now. I've been looking forward to this interview for months. As soon as I heard that Heather Cox Richardson was writing a book, I immediately contacted the publisher with whom I have a relationship because I I do talk with a lot of their authors. And I said, please, I I, I mean, this one I really want to get in on. Heather Cox Richardson is a you're a professor, a history professor at Boston College, yes, uh, but so much more. You're an author of seven books, the new one, which comes out on September 26th called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And I'm guessing that this is an outgrowth of your letters from an American, which is your nightly Substack newsletter that uh, I, I marvel at your your proficiency here. So it, is that right? Did the book come out of the, the newsletter? It did. Well, first of all, let me say that it's such a joy to be here. You know, it, it, following you all these years and also, you know, knowing that you and I have been through so many of the same things, it's really going to be fun to talk about this. So yeah, the book was theoretically originally supposed to be based in the letters. And it is based in letters in that it answers the the questions that people most often ask me. But it was a really interesting experience because it ended up being entirely its own thing that felt in a way as if it was not really part of me the way a book normally is. That is, I wrote a I wrote it. I wrote a draft and then I did a bunch of other stuff. I got married and I was doing the letters and I was doing all kinds of stuff. So I left it for a number of months. And when I went back to it, three or four months later, it was an entirely different book than I thought I had written. So I ended up rewriting about 80% of it and it took on a life of its own. So yes, it is the same person who wrote the letters in some way. It's a very personal vision of, of, you know, the, of me, but, um, but it's not the letters. It's, it's something a little bit different. Well, it's, I got to tell you, as I'm reading it and I'm embarrassed to say, I'm only about halfway through uh, because I, as I told you, we're in the midst of a move. So I'm packing the house and I'm doing my show and trying to do 20 things at once. And I, I'm surreptitiously like reading a chapter at a time when I can grab it. And it's hard to put down because you, first of all, we lived through much of what you're writing about. And I couldn't help but think as I'm knee deep into it, that and I mean this in in the in the kindest possible way that this is sort of that you, that I'm reading the successor to Howard Zinn in explaining our history because you do it in a in just a, a an easy to understand way, but no bullshit. You cut through it, and this is what happened, and this is where we are, and uh, and I mean that as a as a high compliment. So so much of it, as I said, we lived through. In fact, parts of it. You know, I'm going through like I was on Air America when uh, a lot of this happened. When you talked about, you know, Bush v. Gore, I happened to be in 
Kazakhstan, where I adopted my daughter during the whole um, uh, the, the Brooks Brothers riot. The only news coverage we had over there, I, I was there from November 19th to December 13th. The only news channel we had was Fox International. So I'm seeing everything the lens. But reading your historical take on it, it's just everything came into place. And then when you got closer to the last few years, last 10 years or so, um, the, the PTSD started coming back. It's like all this stuff you went through, but you so get it and you've got this gift for explaining it. And I'm guessing that comes from being a teacher. Yes, that's exactly right. And you're one of the few people who have picked that up, that so much of what I do is informed by being a teacher and by recognizing that there's, you know, there's so much to keep track of all the time. Nobody should be expected to do all of it. And it's just to have somebody say, remember, this is where we are. And this is who these characters are. And this is what these laws mean. And this is what all of it means for individuals going forward with their lives. I will say that the the book is divided into three parts. And the first part is how we got to this particular moment. The middle part that you're not the first person to say it is a traumatic experience. Mm. And I found it so rereading the book. The second part is how the the rise of a certain kind of right-wing oligarchy between 1937 to 19, and 19, I'm sorry, uh, 1937 to 2016 gave us an authoritarian president who mm. took that oligarchy and turned it into authoritarianism. And when you strip out the noise of the Trump years, oh my God, it's like, you know, I lived that. I was day to day. I was writing about it every night. But when I stripped out, oh, he got fired and she said this and all that, I'm like, oh my God, this is classic authoritarianism. But then crucially, the piece you haven't gotten to is how we get out. Yes. Like, like why we don't all just throw up our hands and say we're done. And that part, I think, is the original contribution here. Well, and I did. I've been reading some of your back and forth, because in addition to your nightly letters from an American and you co-host the podcast for Vox, then and now and then you also do these Facebook um, uh, talks where you you really communicate with the viewers, the li- the listeners. I come from radio, um, and and somebody asked when you you mentioned the book, said, "Well, does it have a happy ending?" And and you say not. What what was your answer? Not necessarily happy, but enlightening. Um, a call to action. It's how do you describe? It- well, so that's that's really interesting because one of the hard things about writing a book about the present, because I'm a historian, right? We're mm. the prophets of the past, was that we don't know how it's going to come out. But that's sort of the whole point. It is either a peon to what was once a great American democracy, a great world experiment, and and how we lost it. Or it is a celebration of its rebirth. And writing along that knife edge was actually really very difficult. But the the message of the book is the message of so much of what I do, that democracy is not a spectator sport and it is never finished. And everybody's got to put skin in the game unless you want it to be done to you rather than having some control over your life, which at the end of the day is really what democracy is about. It's about the human right to self-determination. Absolutely. You know, you said it. My friend, my friend and colleague, Tom Hartman, famously signs off his show every day. This is not a spectator sport. Tag, you're it. And that's a point that you stress over and over again in your writings, in your talks, is that, look, we could hope that these court cases play out and Trump is held accountable for his crimes and the other people who were involved in trying to steal the election and the gaslighting and the 
insanity we've lived with for the last decade or more, and definitely more <laughs> as you get into. Um, but if we, you can't count on any of those things savings. You can't count on the 14th Amendment keeping Trump off the ballot, even though it should. We all need to be active. We all need to participate. And I, I know we say it at every election, but I believe this is the most important election in our lifetimes because it's the diff- it's it's the fate of our democracy. That's I think you're exactly right, and this is this is why I'm putting so much effort into you know celebrating American democracy and also urging people that it's really about them, that it's about what they want for their future. One of the things I see a lot and hear a lot is a number of people saying, "What's going to happen? What are they going to do?" And this, I think, is has been part of the vision of the United States as a as a place that peaked way in somewhere in the, that vague past and that now we're all just supposed to be somehow inheriting that. It's really taken away people's sense of their own power. One of the things that really jumps out to me about the, the curriculum in Florida, for example, mm-hmm. the social studies curriculum was pushed there or the one in Texas that people have forgotten about that was before that is while we're focusing on its erasure of different Uh, racial experiences of history in those states, what really is stripped out across the board, not simply in the American history sections, is the idea that people can have control of resistance, that people can have control of changing the direction of the country. And that to me strikes, uh, that really strikes me as part of a right-wing attempt to make people forget that it's actually about them at the end of the day. Uh, Definitely. And, you know, the other part, when you said when you, you stripped the Trump stuff out of it, what what came to me was, again, I'm so grateful for the history that you lay out in the first section, because you realize, as we've known, Republicans play the long game. This what Trump is putting into action has been planned out meticulously by the people that came before him, starting. Well, you say it started uh, in the 30s. In fact, you even opened the book after you got through the foreword um, with, uh, 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 hold on, I'm going to pull up. The, today's crisis began in the 1930s when Republicans who detested the business regulation and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal began to flirt with the idea of making a formal alliance with two wings of the Democratic Party to stand against it. One thing that we we allude to a lot, but a lot, of, but many people because of our problems in our education system don't understand is the basically the flipping of positions of the Democrats and the Republicans. I bristle when I hear Donald Trump and his ilk say we're the party of Lincoln. Well, not really. Right. Yes. And and um, the, the the piece you just wrote was really interesting because that the first chapter centers on something that happened in 1937 that basically everybody's forgotten about. And that is that a group of essentially racist Democrats from the South put together a, a document with anti-New Deal Republicans to uh, to to make what they called the conservative manifesto. And the principles in that 1937 document, which, of course, gets leaked to the press and everything hits the fan and it doesn't end up going anywhere. Um, the principles in that are are the ones that are motivating today's Republican Party. But the one thing I would say about the long game is that it's not just the Republicans. It's any time a minority wants to overturn the popular will. Mm. 
So we see saw a similar long game among the enslavers in the American South before the Civil War and, and really reaching forward from there. And we've seen this very long game piece by piece on the part of a minority who was trying to overturn the extraordinary po- extraordinarily popular liberal consensus that came out of the New Deal and then out of Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And the that idea of, you know, we can't we can't get people to vote the way we want to because they like the way things are going. So we're going to have to game the system is not so much about political parties, although political parties embody it. It's about I'm a minority and a political minority and I want control and nobody likes what I'm thinking. So how can I game the system so I win in the end anyway? But the fun that I'm say fun, I'm a political historian. The interesting <laughs> thing about that is people don't see it happening for a long time. And then they do. Yeah. And once they do, the first of all, the fury that their system has been corrupted uh, explodes. But then the thing that has always fascinated me about the late 19th century and the, the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s is the extraordinary explosion of creativity and new ways of thinking things and new inclusions and new ways of formulating things. And that's the piece of America right now that I feel like isn't getting anybody really in the media to sit up and say, hey, something really exciting is going on here because it is. Look around us. Right. But the media, I think, is so dogged in trying to appear to be fair that I think the people that are losing out are, are the public in their in their efforts to try to you know be fair to both sides. They are not they're leaving so much out of it. For instance, there's a new poll out. And I think polls right now are kind of crazy to look at because we're still well over. I mean, we're not even we haven't even started voting in the primaries yet. But uh, the fact that 76 percent of the American people, according to this new Wall Street Journal poll, think Joe Biden is too old to run, but only 40 percent think that Donald Trump is. Well, maybe it's because they're we're being beaten over the head with these excuse my language, bullshit stories of Joe Biden's mental acuity fading away. When I look at Donald Trump and I see a blathering fool who, you know, I, I half jokingly said, I put them up against one another in a, in a match on mental acuity and physical ability. Any day of the week, Biden on his worst day would do better than Trump on his best. But there's this narrative out there that for some reason the media is not pushing back on. And so the American public regurgitates what it's hearing. Am I off base here? No. And I think it's it's really interesting. We'd love to hear what you have to say about it, since, of course, you've worked in radio so long that what you're identifying is absolutely the case. Similarly, the fact that most Americans don't recognize that we're in the one of the best economic periods in American history. It is earth shattering. As a number of people said, if Republicans had this kind of a record with the extraordinary, um, extraordinarily high employment rates, mm-hmm. the extraordinary growth rates, the investment in the economy, the fact that we have the we still have inflation, but it's the lowest of any advanced country. I mean, the numbers are truly, truly extraordinary. But people will tell you that the economy is not doing very well. Right. And the the answer to that, I think, speaks very deeply to a recognition that part of American democracy is popular opinion. And that, I think, is where a lot of people and I hate to pick on the media simply because, you know, there's so many cuts and all that 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 make their lives so difficult. They forget that they're being played. Yeah. 
And and one of the things that the Republican Party has done extraordinarily well in the period, really since the 1950s, and certainly that the uh, Southern slavers did before the Civil War, was to play the media and to make sure that the narrative that got out there was not what was really happening. And what's different now about the 19th century, for example, is that this is a form of warfare that other countries are deliberately engaging in to weaken the United States. And of course, we always point to Russia, which has certainly done that in the past since at least 2014, but uh, and continues to do so, although the the demise of Prigozhin is going to be really interesting uh-huh. because, of course, he ran the Internet uh, um, research agency that was responsible for the 2016 interference in that election. But other countries have done that as well with the idea that if you can just divide the United States, if you can just pull down the United States, that pulls down NATO. OK, so that's really going to hurt Europe. And that pulls down any of the support systems that the United States is trying to reinforce in the Indo-Pacific. OK, that's going to help China. And and it frustrates me that people don't understand that if you're going to change politics and you're going to change the world, you must change the narrative. And and I firmly believe that if you change the narrative so it's based in fact as opposed to this fantasy world that is really deliberately being pushed by bad actors, that that people will make good decisions. Um, but the idea that you actually have to base your your understanding of the world in facts as opposed to, well, lots of people feel like things, you know, I don't really care how people feel. I care about what what the world actually looks like. And that seems to get a lot of short shrift these days. Definitely. But I think, you know, they've got a long head start on us. So a lot of the names that many people are just knowing for the first time, um, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Bill Barr, Steve Bannon. Well, funny, they all crop up in your book in the earlier chapters, starting with around the Nixon years. And the things that Nixon and that were put in place during the Nixon administration are just now coming to fruition. You know, um, I hear a lot about Donald Trump saying, well, you know, taking blame, taking responsibility for nothing. And that's a lesson he learned from Roy Cohn. But we're leaving out these other people. Roger Stone, who's been like, you know, a, a, a thing on his shoulder from since before he even decided to run, has been doing this. And part of it is vilify the media. Um, you know, it, turn everything upside down. It is the art of gaslighting that they have perfected to where r- people like you and me who follow the news and know what's happening and um, it, 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 rely on facts are going, wait a minute, it's the exact opposite. I, I coined this phrase years ago, opposite world. And that's where I feel like I'm living here. It, it, it's a little a little thing. It goes like this. Everything you thought you knew, you never knew it all. Sideways is straight ahead. Facts no longer matter. Reality is now fiction. There's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, opposite world. It, nothing makes sense. And if you take, you know, it's like them saying, you know, they stole it. Stop the steal. They're still. No, that's what they were doing. Everything. It's the old I'm rubber, your glue argument. It's 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 like that immature, but it it's working for them. And they now they have a whole media arm in Fox and Breitbart and the right wing media that didn't exist before they killed the Fairness Doctrine under Ronald Reagan. 
Well, and and remember, this is an actual uh, form of political engagement that has really been articulated in Russia as something called political technology, which is the creation of a false world that people identify with and vote based on, even though it is indeed a false reality. And there's a number of pieces to that. There's the flooding the zone with shit, as Steve Bannon always said, um, because then people, it's not necessarily that they believe it, but they start to say, oh, well, both sides do it. And you're seeing this all the time now with the idea that uh, President Joe Biden took bribes from China. There's literally no evidence, literally no evidence of that. But the idea is to try and say, so it's not a big deal when Trump pulled crap like that. So part of it is just the idea to make it look like everybody is doing the same stuff. Part of it is to make people say, well, I just don't know. I can't tell what's real anymore. And to retreat from that public sphere so that you lose the people who are actually discerning because they just throw up their hands. Um, but there's a number of pieces that that we don't really talk about that are really coming to the fore here before 2024. And one of the pieces of political technology is to run fake candidates. Candidates who either claim to be Democrats or in America claim to be members of the opposition, but truly aren't. And on that, you have to look at uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, of course, backed by Republican money and and really getting Republican traction, even though technically he's running as a Democrat, as a Kennedy, as a Democrat. That's the other thing is in political technology, you try and get people with the same last name so that people who aren't paying a lot of attention make bad decisions. But also this... um, no labels party, also oh. big Republican money. And that that's the sort of thing that worries me is that people don't understand that that's a political technique that is antithetical to the very concept of having a country based on objective reality, which was, of course, the whole point of the Declaration of Independence to say, you know, we don't actually have to have a country based on traditions so that we have kings. It doesn't have to be based on religion because you do that. There's always blood in the streets. It doesn't have to be based on on uh, ethnicities. What it can be based on is the idea of laws that are achieved by observing reality. And, and we're throwing that out the window. We are. And, it, it, you know, and again, it's because, you know, Donald Trump very famously um, said this. I think I only heard him say it once. I love the poorly educated. He loves the poorly educated. Well, I think that was their game plan. You talked about, you know, the the curriculum here in Florida. It's astounding. Um, and and Ted Kennedy actually he 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 predicted it. You have a quote in here when um, they had uh, nominated. I think it was Reagan nominated Robert Bork for the Supreme Court, and thankfully. The Senate said, no, that's that's a bridge too far, although they put Scalia in and they put Thomas. They put, but you, you wrote that Ted Kennedy warned that, quote, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women could be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens doors in midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are at the heart of our democracy. Well, how many of those are happening right now? That was it's astonishing. Kennedy. It Isn't is it? astonishing. Because because when he said that, of course, everybody jumped all over him for saying that. And at the same time, the way most people remember, speaking of, of gaslighting, the way most people remember the fact that Bork was not confirmed to the United States Supreme Court is that the Democrats destroyed this this you know brilliant man. 
In fact, he was so extreme, it was Democrats and Republicans who said, hey, we're not interested. Right. And the next nominee got the, got the Democratic votes he needed as well to get onto the court. But that's not how people remember that moment. They have turned this extraordinary um this extraordinary moment into the Democrats sort of exaggerating and ruining this poor man's life when, in fact, essentially, Kennedy was right. I mean, we're looking at exactly what Bork was trying to do by unwinding the idea of the federal government protecting the rights of political minorities um, you know, and and ethnic minorities, racial minorities, and gender minorities in the states, Kennedy was exactly right about where it was going. And yes, indeed, I mean, we're looking at a place now where where Texas, for example, is uh, trying to prevent women from using uh, state highways to leave the state to get an abortion. I mean, can you imagine we're at a place no. where women might have trouble crossing state lines? No. And you and I are right around the same age. And look, as I was a teenager. Coming into my teens, fine, you know, women were given the right to to have control over our bodies. I never in a million years thought that 50 years down the line, I'm going to be worried for my daughter who now loses those rights. She lives in Florida. She's 24 years old. My God, if something happened to her, I, I, that's we're leaving. I'm hoping she follows us to Arizona. I'm I'm freaked out by the the prospect of her being here in Florida, but it's not just Florida. It's state after state after state where the Republicans have taken over the state legislatures, invoked gerrymandering to pick the votes. I mean, you point out that um the Republicans, although they've, you know, they controlled most of the state legislatures in many cases, they're not winning the popular vote just like in the presidential elections. They've had a couple of uh Republican presidents in, in in this century, none of them won the popular vote. Um, yes, so it's a minority rule. Yes. And you see this really dramatically right now in Wisconsin, where the, the Democrats win handily in the se- Senate and in the state Senate and in the, the governor's chair. But the House is so gerrymandered in Wisconsin that uh, the Republicans have a supermajority um, simply because they have managed to game the system. The one thing I would say about uh, I just wanted to add here about abortion rights is that women weren't given the right. Women we have wanted. the right. They they, they so, fought for the right and they won it through. It wasn't given at all. Well, I, I was going to make it a little more expansive. Okay. That is in uh, in American democracy, citizens have the right to uh, to have control over their bodies. So women have that right. The Supreme Court recognized it in 1973, and now it no longer recognizes that right. We still have that right. Right. It's just not recognized by our government. And that's the problem. You know, it's one thing if, you know, they give us a right to, I I don't know, I could make something up here. And it's not a fundamental uh, uh, constitutional right that that people should have in a democracy. Then, you know, they can give that, they can take it away because it shouldn't really matter. But a constitutional right is a fundamental right in the United States. And it was recognized and now it is not recognized. And that says a great deal about who is being currently recognized as equal, which theoretically we are guaranteed under our constitution theoretically but you have some on the supreme court saying well not necessarily um you know heather cox richardson it it is so great to be able to talk to you and my mind is spinning with a million questions and i'm looking at the clock because we only have a half hour you're just starting on the book tour and in fact we're recording this early 
because of my impending move. And so, but we have 30 minutes and, and we just scratched the surface. My, I just need to say everybody needs to read this book. It will open your eyes to things that you knew, but it, but, but you didn't, you knew, but nobody had explained it this way. It's like, of course, that makes sense. All the pieces come together. Um, it, we didn't. We didn't get to uh, Sarah Palin, who I think opened the door to Trump's brand of um, of ugliness, and Trump giving the the people who were the racists and the bigots the permission to say the quiet part out loud. Made it okay to say the things you know that that they are thinking, but they never would say in mixed company. And also um, to point out. And you did this in, in a part that I just read that the Republican political machine always had these wedge issues, abortion being one of them, where they use them to to motivate the base, to raise money. But they never really intended on following through. They didn't really plan to overturn Roe v. Wade. They never thought that would happen. They were just going to keep using that as a wedge issue to raise money. And and they did it. So why is the Republican I, I, we don't even have time for this. Why are they going along with this? Well, again, it's a very complicated and large question, but one of the real problems for the Republicans since 1986 was that their program was not popular. So they were going to have to pick up new constituencies and Reagan had really courted the evangelical right in 1980, but after 1986, they really doubled down on evangelicals, and and that idea of picking up religious the the religious right you know starts in 72, not in 73 after Roe versus Wade. It starts in 72 when Pat Buchanan suggests to Nixon he can pick up anti-abortion Democrats and bring them into the coalition, and that takes off in the 1980s. That tail is now wagging the dog because the evangelicals are by far the most loyal Republicans and they turn out to vote. So, um, so that I, you know, that, that pushing of Roe versus Wade is, I'm sorry, that pushing of overturning Roe versus Wade became a reality under Trump, who didn't understand that it was simply supposed to be a red flag. And now, of course, we're seeing the Republican Party completely melting down on that and a number of other fronts. And if we only have a half an hour to get into this, that's the yeah. piece that that really I think is worth emphasizing is that you know we focus on how we got to what looks like the potential to get rid of american democracy once and for all but that is coming apart in our hands and what comes out of that is going to be the next 6 years basically 6 years and what that comes out of that for the world is also going to be perhaps even a smaller period of time with the the destabilization of china for example mm. and of uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to Russia and the you know the the rebuilding of alliances in the Indo-Pacific and and you know all these different things going on and the the message of the book was never intended to be one of oh my god we're all going to hell in a handbasket it was one to say we're we're in hell in a handbasket and now we're going hand over hand on our way out of hell mm -hmm. and what we make of that world is ours and that's why it's called Democracy Awakening and as a sunrise on the cover, because, yeah, we could be going we, we could be going in a really bad direction or we could be going in. A good one. And, and it's up to us. And that's the point. Everybody's got to be involved. The book Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America by Heather Cox Richardson. It's in stores September 26th. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but you can pre-order it now. Um, 
you can sit, you can read it in a weekend, but it's, I, I've been, been in fits and starts just cause I'm doing 20 million things, but it is so good. It is so informative. I, every young person should read it cause they're certainly not learning about our history accurately in schools. Um, I'm in Florida where they probably ban it because one person will say you should ban it. But I'm already taking up too much of our time. Heather, thank you so much. This has been uh, so great to meet you and talk to you. And I hope we can do it again. Um, I know you're embarking on the book tour. Best of luck with it. I don't think you need no luck. This is a great book. It's easy to read. It's informative. And it, it uh, as I said, I think I tweeted out, this should be a required reading for every American. So Thank you and congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and good luck with your move across a number of hot states. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going from hot to hotter. Uh, but again, they don't have the fascists in Arizona. Thank you so much. And I, I hope we can do it again sometime in the future because I think you're going to be a voice that once you're, I know the book tour is kind of a pain in the ass, but once more people hear you, I, well, you know, you you exploded on the scene. You just started doing uh, what a little... Um, a uh, Facebook thing that grew into it took off where you're you're heralded as one of the leading independent journalists out there, historians, journalists. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody called me the other day a celebrity historian. And I have to say, <laughs> doesn't that really sound like a jumbo shrimp? <laughs> <laughs> Military intelligence kind of thing. That's no, right. but in your case, it's true. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson, I think everybody's going to know your name soon, those who don't already. And I think among my listeners, they know who you are. Thank you again. This has been great. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Super. Thank you so much. Isn't she great? I could listen to her for hours. I do, I do hope she comes back. Um, but if, if you want to hear more, she's all over the place right now because she's in the midst of the book tour. So, um, yeah, my, I, have, I have a girl crush on her. <laughs> Heather Cox Richardson. All right. So I told you we were going to go back to hear this Billy Bragg interview. And um, it was when Air America Radio was still on the air, believe it or not. It was August 29th, 2009. And Billy Bragg, so he was my guest on Air America, and he was over in the UK, and I was in Florida. And I, it, we made the arrangements to call him. It was going to be live on the air. And when I called, he answered the phone, and he was in mid-songwrite. Seriously. So here's pretty much the first words he spoke when we connected on August 29th, 2009. You get a, you get a peek into his creative process. Slightly well, unfortunate thing has happened, Nicole. What's that? While I was waiting for you to call, uh-huh. I sat in my office and I picked up my guitar and twiddled around with my guitar. And I've got a tune in my head now. And I'm just about to record it onto my laptop. And it would literally take 30 seconds. That's fine. Do you want me to call you back? Oh, you can, you can hang on and listen to it. Oh, I, see I would love that. It's only oh. a tune. It's only a tune. Okay. It's just, I've, I've promised a mate of mine I'd open the soundtrack of his movie, and he wanted a particular kind of tune. So if you just bear with me a sec, you'll just hear me, it'll just be me playing a little bit of guitar and la la in the way. I love it. I love it. Okay, Go ahead. bear with me a sec then, Nicole. Hang okay, on. thanks. Ah, uh, the creative process, what a wonderful thing it is. Here we go. Thank you. 
sorry about that, Nicole. The thing is, I'll, I'll chat with you for 10 minutes and I'll totally forget it. Oh, no, that's wonderful. I loved hearing that. So is, is that your regular process for, for songwriting? Yeah, generally, yeah. If, I'm, if I've got a, you know, if someone's asked me to do some stuff for them and I'm thinking about, um, I picked up the guitar and I was thinking about his project and tooling around a bit and thought, oh, this is quite, this is quite nice. This might, I mean, basically what I need to do is, is I suppose, you know, for, throw half a dozen tunes at him and say, do you like any of these? And if you do, I'll write lyrics from Basically, I mean, he's got a specific idea for what he, he's making a movie about um, a bunch of women who worked um, for the Ford Motor Company in Dagenham, where I grew up in the 60s, who realized they weren't being as paid as much as the men were for doing the same work. And so they kind of went on strike and, and after a long struggle, in which the men really treated them disrespectfully, they ended up not only getting their, um, winning the strike, but they also... Um, led to the first equal pay legislation in our country. Well, that's wonderful. That's yeah. You know, we, we, we're still dealing with that kind of stuff over here on, on this side of the pond. Congress just passed the Lilly Ledbetter Act. It was one of the first things President Obama signed into law. But I think here in the U.S., we females still make about 70 cents to the male dollar. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it's a ridiculous thing. And it was a, and, um, it was a big, really big deal in the 60s, of course, because of the, uh, that early on, you know. And the great thing was they... Um, they had a sign that we want that said we want um, sexual equality, and uh, they didn't quite open the banner far enough. And they actually said we want sex. <laughs> so they they got a lot of toots of support from people driving by the, the where they were de- where it was. It was a very famous when I was a kid. It was a very famous around around our way, you know. Sort of. And uh, I said I would come up with some sort of nice sixties melodies type things for him. Anyway, moving right on. Yes, well, well, yes, that's a good (laughs) jumping off point to you writing sort of new lyrics to um, Beethoven's Ninth, to the Ode to Joy. I understand. I just spoke with Kerry a little while ago, and he said you were commissioned to do this. Who commissioned you? Uh, I was commissioned by the um, the artistic directors at the um, the South Bank. which is a big art complex on the on the south bank of the River Thames in in London, and their complex of buildings was built in the 19 late 1940s early 50s to something called the Festival of Britain, which was um, ostensibly a centenary um, event to mark the original um, Great Exhibition held by Prince Albert and Queen Victoria at Crystal Palace, but it also was was really about the British. Um, kind of coming out of the, the rubble of the Second World War, particularly in London, and saying, you know, we have survived. Uh, in a time of, you know, the, the years after the Second World War in Britain were a time of great austerity. You know, there was still rationing of, of things right up until, almost until around the time I was born in the 1950s. So there were pretty tough times. And the Festival of Britain was a, a kind of, uh, a, a sort of, reinvigoration of, uh, of the cultural life of, of London, which has suffered hugely in the Blitz. And in the process of that, they built the original um, hall in London where they used to hold all the, the, big, uh, the big concerts was destroyed during the war. So they built a brand new concert hall called the Royal Festival Hall. And it was designed to be accessible to, to the general public. It was designed to be a place that was modern and it wasn't austere and it wasn't sort of, you know, as if they were going into a temple, it would be as if they're going in to see a concert. So it, it kind of looked inside. It looked then very modern. Now it's kind of classic late 40s, early 50s decor. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it was kind of it needed refurbishment inside and outside. So they closed it for I think they closed it for about three or four years. And to celebrate the reopening, they they had a festival, um, and I was commissioned to uh, take part in the in the festival by doing something called a big busk, where I invited people to come along to bring their guitars to the South Bank, outside the South Bank, on the actual bank of the river, and I would lead them through some some uh, buskers' standards. Yeah, buskers in America, don't you? Oh, of course, and most yeah. notably in the subways, yeah. Yeah, well, I used to be a busker in the subway in London, so they invited me to come and, and go for all these sort of songs that buskers play on the subways in London. In the process of one of the planning meetings, um, they were talking about the Ode to Joy, which was going to be the, uh, the the whole festival was going to culminate in a, a performance of the the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with uh, 1,500 choristers from around the UK, amateur and professional, actually in the stalls of the of the new refurbished festival hall wow. with the symphony orchestra on stage, and they were going to do a, the whole of the, the fourth movement, and um, also the, the school children from Lambeth, who, which is the London borough that the festival hall is in, they were all going to do. Every school kid in Lambeth was going to do a performance. They had about, I think they had about five school kid concerts over the weekend in the main hall. And they were singing, the, they, you know, they were going to sing part of the Ode to Joy as part of their festival. So I just said, well, if you like, I'll play it. We can play it in the big bus if you like. If it's going to be the, if it's part of the, you know, the signature tune for the weekend, I'll, I'll get them to play it in the big bus. And I'll write a couple of verses so I can sing it as well because I'm, I'm not, my German's not good enough to sing the original. And so... The woman who was doing the school kids said to me, if you do write a couple of verses, can I have a look at them? Because our school children, are, the school children were like, you know, under 11. And they were having great difficulty with the literal translation of Schiller's Ode to Joy about the daughters of Elysium. Uh-huh. So I duly wrote these couple of verses and I sent them to the woman who was organising the kids. And, uh, and they were very well received. And they rung up and asked me if, I'd, if I could write the entire thing for the closing ceremony, for the, uh, for the final concert. And I said, yeah, oh, yeah, probably. And they said, oh, quite committed by Tuesday. <laughs> and this was Thursday. <laughs> so fortunately, uh, it was a piece of classical music that I'm very familiar with. And uh, the great thing about the Ode to Joy uh, is that it's, it's written like a song. It's right on the nose, you know. Bum, 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 bum. And the verses I'd written, because it was for school children to sing, I'd made the, the lyrics scan right on the nose of the, of the melody. So oh, it would wow. be easier for them to sing. So, so it wasn't it wasn't too difficult to to uh, expand on what I'd written. So that was the first performance of it. Is that where you performed it for the Queen? No, I I, I don't perform it at all. I sit oh. in a very nice little box okay. with my family <laughs> and um, uh, really enjoy it. I mean, because I mean, I've, I've, you know, the Ode to Joy, the fourth movement, probably is one of my favorite pieces of classical music, and it has meaning to people all over the world. And, and, and in some ways, the Ode to Joy is one of the great pieces of art, of, you know, world art. Uh, but unlike the Mona Lisa, you can actually embody it by singing it, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. Uh, and, but to actually write some words and have everybody sing your words, have 1,500 choristers singing my words, that was incredibly exciting. It was, it was a feeling like I've never had before. But the, the original performance, the Queen, uh, that wasn't the one before the Queen. That was just the end of this great weekend of celebration. And it was so exciting. <laughs> it was such a, seemed to me such a strange thing to be doing. I actually didn't tell anybody about it until I saw it was in the program. Wow. It just seemed a daft thing, didn't it? Oh, yeah, could you write the lyrics to the new lyrics to the Ode to Joy? We're going to get 1,500 people in the London Symphonia to play it. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't seem, you know, you go around saying it to people, they're going to lock you up, aren't they? 
if you say, oh, yeah, they're going to sing my lyrics. So the fact that it did happen just that once and that my family were all there to enjoy it as well, my friends, uh, was that in itself was just amazing. And then, um, and then they decided to do a, a gala concert for the Queen, a sort of gala opening concert. And so they, they did it again and invited me to, to come along and, uh, and be present again for that. Wow, and I understand. I mean, I saw the piece you wrote about your meeting with the Queen. You said she charmed the pants off of you. Mm. Not literally, right? No, fortunately. <laughs> fortunately. No, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think she, that's part of her gig, isn't it, really? Yeah. To be all, all things to all people, and she does, it, she does it so well. I mean, you know, she really, uh, she really has uh, a ubiquitous presence. It's not, nothing that I don't think any of us really experience in, in the mere terms of fame, you know. I mean... She is and always has been the queen as long as I've known, you know, uh, uh, the whole idea of being British. She's been the queen. She's on the coin. She's everywhere. You know, it'd be like having Abraham Lincoln come and shake your hand at the end of the the Super Bowl. Right. It'd be like unbelievable, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Although I do have an ambivalent uh, feeling towards the monarchy and its position in our society, the opportunity to actually stand here and look her in the eye, I mean, just out of sheer curiosity. You know, you'd be churlish to resist, wouldn't you? So I went, and also, my mum was there. Wow. And you don't often, in my job, get to do something that really impresses your mum. <laughs> That's right. You know, she's not really hugely impressed, my mum, if, you know, if I'm on uh, Letterman. I love it. You know, I'm really pleased when I'm on TV in America, but my mum's not particularly impressed. Right. I was so on The Weakest did... Link, one, that link once. Uh, that, that impressed her. <laughs> because she, you know, makes watch that. But I think shaking hands with the Queen while, she was, while mum was there, I think that kind of topped... I bet. We are speaking with Billy Bragg. I've been a fan of yours for so long, and this is a great honor for me. Uh, you're well, right now, you're still you're at home in the UK, but you're going yeah. to be heading over to the States for a concert in Santa Monica, California, Saturday night, where there will be another major performance of what they're now calling Beethoven Bragg, right? Yeah. And so tell us how this whole event came about. Well, this event came about... Um, in connection with a guy called Kerry uh, Candale, who's making a movie about the Ninth Symphony and its uses, but it's particularly its political uses over the years. And he's made an, a series of connections with people in uh, Tiananmen Square, with the people who were uh, resisting the military regime in Chile and a number of other places. And um, it kind of chimed in very much with the, the, the way I saw the lyric of, of uh, the Ode to Joy. I mean, I think, I think Schiller's original lyric was quite political. In its, in its own way, in a rather kind of uh, flowery sort of you know, 18th century way. And certainly Beethoven was um, drawn towards the, the, the more political aspects of what Schiller wrote. Schiller's original lyric didn't include the line, Alla Menschen, Wir den Bruder. But the version that, that Beethoven chose to use did include that line. That line translates into English as, um, um, all men become brothers, or as we would say now, all people become one. And I think that that's the central message, that message of, of unity. In fact, um, it goes beyond that because I think the original, the line that just precedes that, talks about what convention's sword has sundered, your magic spells reunite. So the, the message of the song was a message there of, peop- of people coming together. And, and when I came to write, write my lyric, although it's not a translation of Schiller's original lyric, it is a a translation of that idea of, of people coming together. Now, this isn't the first time you've taken some iconic piece and put your own mark on it. You were also tapped by Woody Guthrie's daughter to take some of his lyrics that had not yet been set to music and, and write music for them. 
Yeah, that was uh, that was a little bit easier because the lyric was already there. In some ways, that's a, you know, the, and and because Woody had um, originally written music for those songs, you know, he kept the tunes in his head. He doesn't. He was like me. He's not. You know, he doesn't write music. He keeps the tunes in his head, or sometimes, uh, as I do, um, sing them into my computer to hang on to them. Uh, but he, um, when he died, when Woody died in 1967, those tunes that he wrote and kept in his head were lost forever. So my job, uh, working with uh, the guys from, from Wilco, was to come up with some new music. And that was that helped that you could kind of follow the tempo of the lyric. The lyric had an internal rhythm to it, so it wasn't so hard. The, other, the thing that's most similar to this is... Um, 20 years ago at the Vancouver Folk Festival, Pete Seeger um, commanded me to write a new lyric for the Internationale over uh, a bowl of soup at the Vancouver Folk Festival. <laughs> and um, to some people you can't say no to, and Pete Seeger's one of them sure. in, in my line of business. Right. So I did write a new lyric to the Internationale, and now it's, it's next to the original in the, uh, in the IWW Little Red Songbook. So... It was a little bit, um, a little bit more like that. I think the, the rewriting of the you know, the joy. This will only be the third performance, the performance on Saturday night. It will indeed. Yep, it'll be the first um, in the in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it'll be the first outside the Royal Festival Hall, actually. Wow. <laughs> so it's great that the the idea is uh, is spreading because one, I think one of the things that um, stops choirs from performing the Ode to Joy, which is a great thing to sing and be part of, is that you know you've got a You've got to be able to deliver the German or a literal translation of Schiller's lyric, which is not a bit harder to sing. It's very flowery, the, the literal translation. So I'm, I'm hoping that a new, more singable translation will help to popularize it among choirs. That would be wonderful. Now, is there a recording of this planned? Not well. I'd love there to be a recording of this event. And as Kerry's making a film, I'm sure he will be getting the sound down as well, which will be... Uh, Absolutely brilliant. My problem is people keep asking me to play it live, which is, which is you can do it, but it's not quite. It hasn't quite got the, it hasn't quite got the, uh, shall we say the, the edge to it that it has when it's sung by fifteen hundred choristers and the London Symphony Orchestra. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do a version for acoustic guitar on on Saturday night ahead of the uh, American Asian Orchestra. We're going to perform it in Santa Monica. Uh, along with lots of other people who are going to be performing their own take on, on the uh, on the Ode to Joy. So it should be a great, great evening. I'm very much looking forward to it. Oh, I, I so wish I could be there. Unfortunately, I'm I'm on the uh, east coast of, of the States now, and I'll be in Los Angeles two days after the concert on ah. Saturday night, which, yes, is heartbreaking for me. As I said, hopefully uh, you'll, you'll get to see the uh, the film and the performance and uh, and a little more of, uh, of other people performing it as well. I think that... It's one of those ubiquitous pieces of music that everybody, everybody's familiar with. Someone asked me in an interview the other day, when did you first become aware of it? And I was hard-pressed to put my finger on that. And uh, it's, a, it's a very special thing to be part of. Well, absolutely. And, th- and that is one of the, the seminal pieces of classical music, even for people like me who aren't particular fans of, of classical music. Yeah. The, the Ode to Joy is just, it's everywhere. And it is a joyous-sounding piece of music, and it's one I mean, you know on yeah. the first note. Never mind classical music. It's one of the great hummable tunes of, of all time. That's know? right. That's right. And, and, in, uh, and his day wasn't Beethoven. He was a rock star. He was. He was, although a very old and rather deaf one, unfortunately. Right, I think right. this, this last uh, symphony that he wrote, I think, finally su- he summoned up everything that he he wanted to put in. He f- he finished on an incredibly high note. I mean, particularly that last movement. It is almost a symphony within a symphony. The way he's put it together, 
and uh, he certainly had an ear for a damn good tune. Absolutely. For a deaf fellow. Right, exactly, O'Neill. Billy Bragg, so what happens after Saturday night? When, then what are you, are you going to stick around in the States for a while? Any, sh- any no, other no, shows? I'm, no, uh, I'm, I'm coming back to do another big busk. It's become rather popular now. I'm uh, getting together with uh, the other thing that I was doing at that, uh, that uh, festival where we first performed the Ode to Joy. Another big busk. And then um, it's going to be performed for a third time uh, here in the UK as part of a uh, festival of the music of Leonard Bernstein wow. uh, on the South Bank. They're having a Bernstein festival. And amongst it, because, because Bernstein was so identified with the Ode to Joy, uh, they're going to perform uh, the fourth movement, but with my lyrics, which is for me is really nice because when I got that phone call on the Thursday... Couldn't you write it by Tuesday? I, having put the phone down, I went and looked at my CD collection, and, and the only version I had of the whole uh, fourth movement was Bernstein's version that he recorded uh, at the Berlin Wall, at the Brandenburg Gate in uh, 1990, I think, the so-called uh, Ode to Freedom. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it was Bernstein who... I had one in the car all weekend driving around. It was Bernstein who was going through my head as I was walking the dog up the top of the hill trying to think of another line. And so it seemed to me very fitting that, that um, it should be part of uh, a celebration of, uh, of his work at the South Bank. Sounds amazing. Um, all right, you said you're going to, at the show on Saturday night, hopefully do an acoustic rendition uh, bef- before the, the choral performance. Yeah. Do you have it worked out yet? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends how far you want to go with it. I mean, it is a, uh, you know, it is a piece of classical music. And, and the, the difficult thing was that half, you know, the, the first part of the uh, libretto is pretty straightforward. It's the, it's the tune that everyone is vaguely familiar with. But the second half, Beethoven puts in a much more orchestral piece and he takes different lines from the, the libretto he's already used and, and threads them through it. And I was very fortunate in that the, the woman who was the choir master for the first performance on that Tuesday when I went up to London, we literally sat by the upright piano and she sat there with the score and we went together through the the second part, the much more orchestral part of the uh, the fourth movement, and together we kind of, uh, with her help, I, I, we chose the lines that we thought were important. I wrote a couple more lines there and then, and at, at one moment when we needed a line, I just I, I felt very very strongly that we should actually use the the, the phrase "Alimentian Fiedenbruder," both because it was the key line for me in rewriting the text, but also to, to recognise that this. Where, where this song originally came from, um, you know, both thinking of Beethoven, but also thinking of a, this being a great piece of art of, uh, of the German language. So that actual line, Alimentian Wiedenbruder, is, is still in my version. One of my favorite albums of yours is Talking with the Taxman about poetry. And mm-hmm. and that title reminds me of a, a quote, and I'm, I'm at a loss right now as to who said it, but it's something to the effect of talking about music is like dancing about architecture um, architecture thank dancing you dancing about architecture i think it was frank zappa uh, it very well could have been Talk- it's, most, it's most often credited you may not have been in, but it, i when i see it it's most often credited to frank zappa okay well another genius there so what i'm getting at is we're talking about this and i'm dying to hear your work <laughs> um <laughs> i may have to wait till the movie but i know when when i first got you on the phone you were fiddling with the guitar and and putting a tune that you had just come into your mind down so that you'd remember it after our conversation. Any chance I could get you to do just a couple of bars of it? Of the How to Do It? Yeah. I could certainly play you a bit on the acoustic guitar. Okay. Would you like a little bit of that? I would love it. 
Okay, let's see. Uh, I'm not sure what the uh, fidelity will be like down the uh, transatlantic phone line, but why don't, right. you, uh, why don't you sit there and, uh, and uh, tilt your ears this way, and I'll see what I can do. Will do. Thank you. Thank you so much. What, well, a, what a joy. It shows it can be done, at least. Absolutely. Billy Bragg, what, what an honor this has been. Uh, again, thank you so much for, you, for taking the time. And I look forward to, uh, well, seeing, seeing the film so I can see the whole performance. Yeah, but let's see. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll take the whole thing on tour. Beethoven, that, uh, and Bra- Beethoven and Bragg on tour. I can see the tour T-shirt now. The great Billy Bragg. And that's, we're out of time. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'll see you Monday, hopefully live from my newly rebuilt studio. Peace out.